Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Prod Squad podcast. Nick Cook here, joined, as always, by Brendan Colleton. Brendan, final episode of the year. How are you feeling? Hey, Nick. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's. Happy Hanukkah, all of our visitors out there. Uh, whatever you celebrate, you know, looking forward to it here at the end of the year. Glad we could squeeze one more in. Yeah, and we're going to celebrate this episode. So this episode is our 2023 awards. Everyone has their like wrapped, their award show, their you know year in review. This is our version of it. We just wrote down some uh, fun awards, some professional, some personal. Uh, and we just kind of wanted to rifle through them looking back at 2023. Yeah, we're taking a break from all of our you know creative groundbreaking content and really, <laughs> really going mainstream with this one. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, the the seven previous episodes we put out this year really taxed us. <laughs> so we had to chill out for this one. Um, all right, so no no retro this week because like the whole thing is is basically the whole thing's a, a retro. retro. Yeah, it's a twenty twenty three retro. Um, so let's important jump. to do. It is. All right, let's jump right in. The first question: What is your product management opinion that has changed the most in the last year? We'll start with yeah, you, Brendan. We can a- alternate. This is a good one. And I had to check myself a little bit because I, I honestly feel like if you have a PM opinion that hasn't changed or no professional opinions that have changed, that's a terrible sign. Like you, mm-hmm. you got to be, you got to be updating them, got to be open to change. And I think the, the one that's biggest for me uh, is probably one that actually took me maybe the longest to come around to. Um, you know, obviously we were at Logic Manager, which was sort of like a platform play, right? Like it was like a Swiss army knife, uh, it was like a tool set that customers could modify and, and use to the best of their ability, but it wasn't specialized in any way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was in that environment for almost a decade. And I think I definitely believed that that was the best way to build, right? Like we were building things so efficiently. We always made reuse of a feature for as much value as we could possibly squeeze out of it, right? Uh, we operated in a really lean mindset there. And uh, coming to Viva, a huge company with a a relatively huge company compared to Logic Manager, obviously, Mm -hmm. and then a uh, company where uh, a a much broader product line, but also a product line that had like a ton of specialization. um, I kind of just looked around all the time and I was like, you know, some of these products do similar things, you know. They all have, you know, maybe workflow engines or like configuration engines that were built by different people. And like, how can this possibly be the best way to to like set up a company? Um, just because it seems so inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we would even be involved in it, right? Like our team would build a product that was like a very slight variation of what someone else was building. Um, but I think over time, I've kind of come around to, you know, if you have the resources and you are able to do this and really specialize it's probably the best way to test a product market fit quickly because you can you're basically starting with a blank slate every time and you can always go for that mvp that is the best possible fit for your market as opposed to needing to work with what's been there before and trying to like you know branch off of something you've already created um and I think there is like a huge value in really starting with a blank slate, like really starting with a team that's like, 
there's nothing in the way. This is the problem we're trying to solve. What's the best product you can put out there? So that type of specialization being really valuable as a way to, you know, find product market fit, I think is something that I've uh, come around to. Yeah. And you don't have that overhead of being like, all right, we want to add something to make this workflow work for us. How is that going to impact everything else? It's like, no, no, no. This is our workflow. This is our piece of the product that we totally control. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very different from logic manager. <laughs> usually. <laughs> With, usually. Yeah. Um, so mine is, is frameworks. I was thinking back to the, the, um, the prioritization episode, the, the draft we did. Um, but I think, you know, this is partially 2023, but more like, honestly, if I look back at like the start of my PMing to now, I feel like there's this real appeal when you start out to like, there just has to be one framework that works, right? Like if I, if I can just find that one and use it, then like I'm good. Um, and then you go through, or at least I did like a lot of them. Right. And there, everyone has their own version of basically value versus effort. Like that's what it all is at the end of the day. Um, so I still like frameworks as ways to have discussions and like a forcing function to think about something in a certain way. But I think in general, my opinion has moved away from any need to be like dogmatic about a framework or like we have to put everything through rice or, or whatever it is, you know, which is definitely something, you know, this year or even, you know, again, more broadly that I was leaned on more heavily, I think in the past. I feel yeah. like you've always been cooler on frameworks than that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely, which is, why, which is why it's so ironic that I won the framework draft <laughs> that we did, uh, you know, earlier on in, in Prod Squad lore. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think for me, I remember once we went to a, like... A, I knew you were going to bring up some the, sort of... The, yeah, yeah, I, I know forget exactly what it was. What you're some say. sort it's of product it was a conference. BPMA, Boston yeah, Product sure. Management Association. Yeah. Yep, they had a conference and they had like, four PMs there from, you know, Wayfair and all the different uh, orgs. And they asked people like, oh, what's your what's your favorite prioritization framework? And like the guy that was most senior there was like, yeah, you know, I think just my gut and going with my gut, that was, that's the framework that works best for me. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's, that's great. That I agree. That's the best. <laughs> I, I remember thinking in that moment, because obviously we worked together at the time. I was like, oh, God, we're never going to get a framework into Logic Manager now. Brendan's been so validated. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on the balance, I still like them. I still think you should talk about value versus effort, and it forces you to. But obviously, don't be, don't just follow them, you know, in strict sense. Um, All right, Nick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us going on the next one here. So uh, 2023, you've had almost 365 days. How have, how have you leveled up? What have... Uh, what have you what have you learned what have you unlocked in your pm skill set okay this is probably the one i'm most excited to talk about and i i won't go long in it because i was like we should maybe do an episode on this or like another mvp style episode whatever anyways it's called rats so it stands for riskiest assumptions testable um and so <laughs> for a second i thought you were gonna it was gonna be a framework that you were, <laughs> that you were thrown out i was like oh so, gosh like you really haven't learned anything <laughs> so the r you rate risk one to ten you <laughs> <laughs> no i'm kidding but uh, the the long story short is and this has come into play recently in the last few months as i've moved on to basically building a, a new product kind of going zero to one with something um and you know this is a common thing in product management is you're making assumptions 
and then you're figuring out if your assumptions are right or not, right? You're doing customer interviews and, and all that. Um, and this is basically just like, I guess, slightly formalizing it more and saying like, when we think about doing our build, measure, learn loop, like the thing we should learn every time is we should find what is the riskiest assumption we're making and then do whatever it takes to validate that. And, and actually kind of, you know, it gets away from one of the challenges I think with MVP is people debate what is minimum, what is viable, right? Like you focus on those words or you can, and I've certainly done that. And this is like effectively saying, all right, these are the riskiest assumptions about our product. We either need to find a way to mitigate them or validate that our assumptions are correct. And, you know, when you start out, it's like, will anyone pay for this? Does anyone care about, you know, like very generalized, you do customer interviews, right? Um, and, uh, and it has just been a really great way, especially building sort of a brand new product. Like there's infinite things you can do. I mean, <laughs> and, and so just being really focused on what are the riskiest assumptions? Like what are the things that if not true would make this product not work? Um, do you, do you actually, uh, and I, is there like an inventory of assumptions that, that are risky that yes. you, you so log? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a, I call it my rat log like backlog. <laughs> um, and, but it is a, a backlog of risky assumptions prioritized st stack ranked, if you will. Um, and, and, uh, even, even categorized like, uh, you know, there's feasibility risks, there's usability risks, there's business viability and there's value anyways, could be an episode perhaps in the future, but it's really helped guide, um, the project I'm working on right now and, and has, uh, paid dividends. It's, it sounds framework adjacent, if I'm being honest, Nick. It's, it's real close. I see it a little bit different. Yeah, maybe. So, you know, maybe <laughs> I should have said prioritization frameworks. But then sure. again, this is like sort of that. But anyways, uh, I'm no, not I, I like it. One of the things I'll say, I, I like it. I'm, I'm teasing. But uh, but in general, the, the thing that I like about it is that uh, there's a tendency when you're talking to senior leadership or talking to different stakeholders that people will state assumptions as if they were not assumptions, but in fact, mm -hmm. like known quantities, uh, and operate off of them. And, uh, it's, it becomes so challenging because, uh, as a PM, you're sitting there and you're like, how do we know that? Or do we know that? Uh, and so I think coming to an agreement about what we actually do not know can be really valuable in those instances mm -hmm. where like someone's trying to make a decision off of, uh, a, a known quantity, you know, quote unquote, that uh, we have no data to back up. Um, and so I think that this sounds incredibly useful in, in that sense to like, make sure you don't do that and instead focus on like, well, let's prove that out so that we can mm -hmm. move beyond it. Exactly. And one last thing I'll add is w this product is also dealing with generative AI. So there's like, that's so new. And there's like, a, we have a lot of ideas of how to utilize it, but it's like, some of these are assumptions like we have to you know prove out that it, it can fit this use case so i knew we wouldn't get through a 2023 retro without without ai <laughs> so here we are <laughs> it had to be done all right brendan what about you uh so for me I, this was what something that came out of like my my you know performance review goals last year uh was that i wanted to you know, reduce the burden on our designers by doing more uh, like wireframing and getting uh, getting better at, at using Figma. 
Uh, and so my Figma game is, uh, it's not designer level. Don't get me wrong. No one's going to be hiring me to be a product designer. <laughs> you freelance it uh, on the side? <laughs> yeah, but I, I have the ability to, to go way, way farther with, uh, I, I think they're, they're certainly farther than wireframes now in terms of just like boxes and buttons, um, but actually leveraging like all the components that a, uh, you know, a designer has painstakingly put together to, uh, to come up with a, uh, uh, I think a cleaner way of articulating to a designer what I'm envisioning and how it might operate. And then also there's a huge, I think just time saving dependency when like, I'm having a conversation with the developer and we're trying to sort out how something should work. And it's like the one screen or the one use case that we haven't mocked up in like a formal Figma design for me just to be able to whip up like exactly what it should look like with existing components and like all the right amounts of padding uh, is so helpful and probably helpful to our designer too. So I don't have to go to him for like every single mock-up that we could possibly need. Um, you know, especially some of those like intermediary mockups where you know we're not implementing the final design yet we're just getting halfway there mm-hmm. uh, I feel like I, I I could have made prior designers lives that that we worked with could have made their lives a lot easier having the level of skill I do now yeah there's a nice in between between final design a designer um, you know produces and here's a list of bullets of things in my head <laughs> so you yeah. could you could take a step step beyond. Um, all right, Brennan, I'm dying. T- I, I, I'm reading ahead to the next question. And I, I, what is your answer to this? So the category or the award is proudest professional moment of the year. Please start. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what I'll say is, I'm, you know, the team that we're at at Aviva, right? Uh, the, uh, we're, we're part of the public benefit mission of the company, right? We are sort of like a skunk works team, right? We work on a lot of products that are for the public benefit, but they have a sort of an uncertain payoff, right? We're not necessarily certain, we're not tra- out there trying to get necessarily paid for the products as part of the public benefit, but we do wanna make sure they're valuable uh, to the people that we're serving. And I think I had always sort of had the question for some of the products that we were building, one of which is like a, a clinical trial search, right? Something that helps people find clinical trials is uh, how big of a problem is this actually, right? Like how if we built the best possible clinical trial search, like are there are there patients out there that would actually use it? Or does everybody just learn about a clinical trial from their doctor? Does everybody just learn about it from, you know, uh, an advertisement, right? It's not gonna be something that a patient ever seeks out. Um, and an article dropped in the clinical trial space about a month ago. I actually think I sent it maybe mm. to you by email and mm-hmm. you might not have read it. Yeah. I think probably you clearly haven't read it based on your reaction to yeah uh but the uh it, just so you know it's it's starred in my inbox so that's my i'll get there <laughs> i appreciate that podcast host <laughs> who, who i uh the uh the the cool thing about the article uh it's called please be dying but not too quickly i highly recommend anybody like in the med tech space or interested in clinical trials read it it's actually more like an essay like it'll take three hours of your life to read it. I don't blame you for not getting there because it is, it's I'm going to go on chunk of time. it now that you told me that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, it's written by a doctor whose a husband um, was diagnosed with like a very aggressive form of cancer. And she started seeking, like basically the, the treatment that they tried, radiation did not work. And they were only, the only thing left to try was clinical trials. And so her as a, as a doctor went and tried to find one and she basically writes in 
again, like three hours worth of written content, like it's a a small novel effectively, Mm. all the challenges that she ran into along the way. And like, it was just a a crystallization of, uh, I think like the user persona effectively that this particular product that we're working on could be geared towards. Um, And so like, is that a, I don't think that's a, it's hard to say that that's like a, a proud professional moment necessarily, but uh, I think it's one that may be most impactful to to like my year, just because again it it crystallized the who we were building this for and how severe of a problem it was that you know somebody with a a, a doctor right an ER doctor mm-hmm. with us a patient that she knew absolutely everything about you know every possible medical piece of information that could be used to find the right clinical trial struggled so mightily to do so and required so much outside help. And like, there was just no tool that at all could help her along the way. Um, and I just thought it was such a motivating and kind of captivating thing to, uh, to have our articulated for, for you as a PM, uh, and obviously gave us like so much, so many ideas and so much, uh, motivation to go out and try to make this easier so that was my uh uh i think maybe the most impactful professional moment of my of my 2023 awesome my i'm changing we have a question in the future about what your resolution is i'm going to change mine to read the thing that you used to <laughs> <laughs> uh, um for me um so this actually ties into rats uh what we just talked about but this project I'm on where um, launching a product to capture first notice of loss, which is abbreviated as FNOL. And that is simply the first time you tell your insurance carrier about a loss you experienced. Um, so today our platform is most typically brought in after that point. So for the ongoing conversation about your claim, you can text and get update all the, all the things. Um, and so working on that product, um, you know, we're, we're kind of a lot of insurance carriers want a self-service tool, right? A lot of people call in cost the insurance carriers a lot of money. Um, sometimes they're lower qualities, long wait times, all these things that happen when you get on the phone. So there's a big appetite for totally self-serve products. Um, but there are quite a few out there. And, um, so, you know, we're bringing an offering there and one of the cool things was actually using this rats framework these what are risk case assumptions testable we really focused at the start when i was looking at it you know i was really focused on like all right how do we make this um the the product like the the workflow of filling out the fnol as as easy as possible but then when you think about what are the risk case assumptions it's like that anyone ever gets to our workflow that's really the the riskiest thing i'm assuming is that like anyone ever gets there and so then that like led us down a path of um like uh meeting the policyholder on the phone and and start actually starting the product from the phone um so that it's actually funny that like i think we both articulated a very similar problem where like uh like you can develop the best product in in terms of like actually doing the job, mm-hmm. but if the customer is never going to use or find the product, right? Like if yes. if they're not the ones that are going to do the job, then you're kind of screwed, right? Like you have to you have to you have to be where the people like we can't educate every patient in the world about why they should use a clinical trial, right? Like 
you have to have people that want to do that and then they'll find the tool and it'll be useful. Like you can't make a patient initiate a notice of loss if they're not the one or a, a accidentee. I don't know what you call them. <laughs> uh, initiate a notice of loss if yeah. they're not the ones that do it. Um, so it is a, yep. you know, it absolutely right. One of the first things that you got to, got to verify. Yeah. Um, so that felt, that felt good. Um, on the flip side, failure, we, we you know, fail fast. <laughs> Failures happen. Biggest professional failure. I'll start on this one. So a project I worked on at the start of the year, um, was, I think it was actually a really great opportunity where, uh, our product today is sold mostly to insurance carriers to be used by typically like their adjusters, the people who are managing claims. And we had an opportunity to go after a large group of agents. So, you know, insurance agents, people who are typically, you know, selling claims or selling policies. Um, and we basically, the company took a swing. We, we don't have a large share of that market today. And we're going up against competitors that did for this opportunity. And uh, we basically put together like a hit squad at the company. We had engineers who were iterating on our product really quickly. We were doing uh, writing these huge statements of work and how we'd integrate and everything. Ultimately, we got to or the final selection. We didn't get selected. So we ultimately failed. But I look back at it like very, it's one of those, you know, they always say in sports, like leave it all on the field. Like I do feel like we took our best swing at it. And so although it didn't, you know, we didn't win the deal at the end of the day. It still felt like it, and it took a lot of resources. It still felt like it was a good bet to take. And we did everything we could in our power, at least from my perspective. So can't win them all in sales, man. Sales are sales is tough. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh what about you, Brendan? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think some products, right, they, I think when you're working on them and you're in the thick of it, like you almost convince yourself like, yeah, this could work. This is definitely, this is what the industry needs. And then you look at back on it in retrospect and you're like, no, of, of course, that's not what people wanted. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a problem in the clinical trial space uh, of, you know, basically research sites, people that treat patients and take care of people. Um, they, you know, they don't talk to each other. They don't share best practices. Um, they, they don't know what other sites like them are working on in, in terms of clinical trials. And we thought, you know, what if there was a social network for uh, doctors and nurses and, and these researchers so they could connect with each other uh, on a social network? And that's how they would share these practices and keep in touch with each other and connect. And like, maybe it'll become you know, a LinkedIn for clinical trials. And uh, in retrospect, nobody wants another social network in 2023. <laughs> uh, certainly, it. the least of which are doctors and nurses and these really busy professionals that are doing so much already. And then they're also adding on like these low paid clinical trial, you know, uh, investigations that they're that they're leading. Uh, and, and so it just turns out that that's not going to be the best way to uh, to get people engaged. Uh and it seems so obvious in, in retrospect, but uh, we went so far as to, to build it and get it out into the world. And uh, then we had people tell us that it's not what we need and not what we want. But, uh, you know, you, you, you don't win them all. I think you got to test the theory sometimes. And, uh, you know, RIP to uh, LinkedIn for clinical trials. Just got to fail fast. 
uh, LinkedIn appearing again in our next category, favorite <laughs> or least favorite professional product. Brendan, talk more about LinkedIn. <laughs> you know, maybe this was because I had to look so much at LinkedIn <laughs> as I was trying to think about how could we make this better for like a very small subset of individuals. But as I did, and as I look at it now, and as I look at how I interact with LinkedIn and and try to, man, do I have a hard time finding like any value professionally in that platform with like the way that it is just set up to work, right? Like, I don't know about you, but like, I don't know 95% of the people whose posts are like fed onto my homepage or like the feed and like what they're, they're posting. And so many of the posts are like these like mic drop professional moments. And it's also become, I think I haven't noticed this until the last year, maybe the last couple of years, but like this year it really hit me as I started to, you know, think about how we might better improve something like LinkedIn. Um, but like, it's no longer just a professional space either. Like people post anything they really want to on there. Uh, like it's, a, it's I, I think it's almost hard to differentiate from something like Facebook. Uh, you know, maybe slight, I don't even, slightly fewer pictures of people's kids, but there are still pictures of people's <laughs> kids on there. Yeah. Uh, and I've just have found it like uh, increasingly a worse place to find like solid professional uh, tools, like probably still good for job searching. Like I think I'd still use it if I was, you know, to, to hit the market and, and look for a job. LinkedIn, probably a good place yes. to network there and keep track of who you know. But from like a content standpoint and like how it tries to keep people's attention, uh, I, I feel like I it, it's as bad as, you know, Facebook it was at its worst and something I could do without. Yeah, I totally agree. I've lost all interest in scrolling my LinkedIn feed. Like my dream is that it's just all extremely relevant, meaningful, professional content that I could engage with. And it is that is a low percentage of what is on my LinkedIn feed. Um, no. If that's what they're aiming to give, they have so far missed the mark. <laughs> yeah, it's now a platform of professional influencers. <laughs> yes. Not not yeah. great podcasters it is, like us. It is, very, it is very much people that want to be influencers or maybe have succeeded in being influencers. But uh, there's, there's just some, there's some type of vibe of an influencer post that like once you've read you know, 30 of them, you've read them all. And man, it's frustrating to see more of them. Yeah. And, but I do totally agree. There is a, with the job search element, like it is almost, I don't want to say necessity, but like if you're going to do a job search, LinkedIn's going to be one sure. of the places you're doing it. So it's true. It's why yep. I can't cut it out of my life. Exactly. I can't go and delete my profile. It's got to stick around. Um, all right. I'm shocked. I went the opposite. I went favorite. I'm not ready to wholeheartedly recommend this yet because I need some more reps on it. But Jira released a product discovery tool is how they kind of brand it. Um, but it's a way to make kind of like a backlog, like a, like a product backlog separate from like your engineering user stories. You know, they call them ideas is their, you know, kind of the, the typing there. We had used Monday for a while, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's like it's like really awesome spreadsheets is kind of like a way to describe it, but it's kind of like, it's a, it's a horizontal tool. It's like a, sure. you make a board of stuff and you give it columns to define stuff and you can do whatever you want with it. So it has no opinion on it. Um, where this is 
it actually <laughs> Jira clearly <laughs> went to them, went looked at that and was like, let's do all this, but then like make everything about it for product managers. So I think that's cool. Um, honestly, the 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 best part about all of it is that it links. It's called Jira Product Discovery. That's how they. That's how they're that terming is, it. Yes, and and so it's like Jira Software, Jira Service Desk, Jira Product Discovery. Um, but by far the best thing of it is because uh, it's just kind of like a Monday clone that's you know has some niceties. Is that it? You can take each item in the backlog and link it to epics or issues so stories bugs whatever in the um in jira software so you can create a roll up or roll down view so you can put something in your backlog you know initiative a feature a however you want to use it link all the user stories or epics or whatever however you set up your software side to it and then you can like literally and go down to the subtask level and be like this subtask that this engineer is working on is to build this big thing and it like draws a really clear line which i am a huge fan of um yeah so. I, I can't opine unfortunately i not not had any experience with it it's actually maybe maybe a, a quick like side award here for product i miss the most is uh the, the jira cloud suite or the atlassian cloud suite mm-hmm. like we've moved uh we use jira but it's a jira server so it's like uh you know uh hosted by the company and therefore several generations behind probably what like the best in class cloud or newest releases are uh and all the you know bells and whistles that come with that uh which is such a shame i always felt like atlassian did a it was such an interesting job of like knowing most of your most of your clients are so technical and so you could like build in uh like kind of pseudo technical interfaces that people could figure out and work with and do a decent job with that like you never had to worry about non-technical folks interacting with um very kind of a very interesting like market they get to build for i will say their settings are still trash the, <laughs> it still took me so long to figure out how I got could give everyone access to this because I like set it up and it was like oh sorry they're collaborators but to make them contributors you got to add them to this group I was like I can't do this I should be able to type someone's name in and they should get access field screens field schemas <laughs> green schemes schemes <laughs> field screen schemas yeah that I'll, part still I'll, sucks yeah. but if you assume that's taken care of it's pretty good yes very um, true very true they yeah that, classic issue but once implemented nicely i think some really cool stuff going on there agreed do not miss screen schemes (laughs) our first personal award of the of the episode our favorite personal product yeah we're gonna have much more personal ones too so uh but uh where'd you go for this one so (laughs) this answer is so lame but it's tick tick not tiktok not to be confused with tiktok oh man I, I as I heard it and as I read it, I just thought, great, Nick's going to talk to us about TikTok, like fantastic. <laughs> I've actually deleted it, <laughs> but not TikTok, Brendan. It's way cooler. It's a to-do list <laughs> app. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know this is not something that gets everyone excited, but I love a good to-do list. I actually now use it. I have it a professional login and like a personal login, so I use it both at work and at home, separate logins to keep them separated um i mean there's a lot of good to do list apps i just i love this one it it has everything i want 
in it. I'm not going to go into detail. I, no one wants to hear me talk about a to-do list app. I, I have but, questions, but I also don't want you yeah, to get do into you really to-do want to ask? <laughs> We're 30 minutes in and you're like, let me ask my to-do list questions. Um, I will. So <clears throat> regardless of TickTick, which I think is the best to-do list I've used, something I really appreciate is the ability, the second I have a thing I realize I have to do, like, oh, I have to get back to this person or I need to follow up on something in a few days. I like just putting it down somewhere so I, I can take, I can relieve the brain space that's like trying to remember that I need to do that thing. So I'm big on it. Like I have it as one of the main widgets on my phone. And the second I'm like, oh, I gotta, you know, do, I gotta do something with the dog. Like, you know, I gotta, the, the, there's a vet appointment. I just boom, put it in there, set it on the right date. And then I don't think about it anymore. So that's why I love to do lists in general. All right, that's you can't my just to do be like a, a normal person and use your iPhone Notes app. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Brad. All right. <laughs> How could now? What's your product? I, it can't be more interesting than a to do list app. <laughs> it probably isn't. It's one of those products that, like, uh, I I think it's fantastic. I honestly don't think their paid features are worth paying for. But I, it's one of the products that I pay for mostly because I want to support the brand and the company. But it's Strava. I also hold sure... on. I also feel in a way about TickTick. I almost just paid them to pay them, but I don't need any more features. But go, yeah, that's their problem. So Strava is a uh, you know basically like a sort of like a social media platform where people's workouts sync, and you can give people kudos and comment. And then there's also like leaderboards for different uh, you know routes that you might run and things like that that are are cool to to keep an eye out for. Um, but I you know I joined a, a run club this year that's been a lot of fun in uh, in the neighborhood, and uh, I think Strava's just been like a really awesome way to augment that by like seeing how active all these people are in the club and like how good they are at running it's just been super motivating so it's a it's a tool i've used for probably almost a decade now but one that uh i think i i've even got i've gotten way more value out of in the last year and uh yeah i i pay for premium despite probably not needing any of the premium features and honestly i, I think some of the premium features are maybe a little overbaked but uh i'm a big fan of it for uh for what it is good for which is like enhancing you know these these local run clubs yeah would you say like the you've liked it for like a tracking mechanism previously now like the social element is like a lot more yes. important yeah that's definitely cool. like previously i was using it just to keep track for myself of of you know my progress but uh now actually getting more of the social side and having that super motivating and a lot of fun like oh my god joe ran 10 miles today I <laughs> um all right, switching back to the professional side. And yeah, we, we kind of front-loaded the professional awards and the, the more personal ones come later. Um, An improvement for 2024. <laughs> we'll do better. Um, favorite PM or professional resource? Um, I went with the second best product management podcast behind Prod Squad, <laughs> Lenny's podcast, which is like infinitely more famous than us. Um, so there's Lenny's, started as a newsletter, he now has a, a podcast. Um, great listen if you're into product management. Has like, uh, you know, someone from the the product space on every episode, and they generally have a focus that they're talking about. So you can kind of just like skim the episode titles and pick ones that interest you because he puts out quite a lot, um, and they're usually you know 90 minute episodes each. Um, but it is the one product management podcast other than Prod Squad that I would unequivocally recommend to anyone that's interested. 
Yeah, on principle, I don't listen to any other product management <laughs> podcasts, but uh, but this one, which I you know always <laughs> Brendan go back and runs to. the Prod Squad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know we we've read a lot of the same you know, PM books, Nick. Like you, you've recommended a few to me, and and you know I've I've started many of them. I have no problem putting down a book that I'm not enjoying, and I felt like uh, a lot of PM resources. Um, you know, I found to be like almost oversimplifications in a lot of ways. I love a good story, like a good founder story, you know, mm. I'll, I'll always get into and read. Um, but I think in terms of like the PM resources that were most valuable to me this year, it was always uh, kind of like the article I mentioned before, right? Like the experiences of people in the industry. Um, you know, an example is, and uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Brad Hightower that manages a clinical trial research site. And, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to walk back my previous comment because he's very active on LinkedIn. <laughs> but he uh, he co- he writes articles. He has his own podcast and he uh, you know, he posts about his challenges as a research site and he's very public. He has quite a following. He has a lot of people that engage with his content. Um, and, uh, you know, finding somebody like in the industry talking about the problems that your customers have is such a valuable resource, especially as I'm finding and getting more into like the, you know, the, the non B2B SaaS space where like people aren't paying hundreds of thousand dollars for your software. So they're not going to yell at you when something doesn't work, you know, instead they're just going to silently not use it. Um, having people that like really loudly proclaim the issues they're having that, you know, will engage in problem solving is super helpful. Um, and so, you know, uh, I don't know if maybe you'd call them an influencer, but like a, an industry specific resource influencer that's like tailor made to like a, a, a your vertical. Uh, I found that to be, you know, the most helpful thing for me this year. Awesome. All right, going back to the personal side, favorite low-tech. So we're, we're all about tech, but favorite low-tech or physical product. Brendan, you got some exciting ones here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, two, the two that really blew my mind this year in terms of just like, why isn't everything made this way? One is called, I think I'm pronouncing it right, like a, a Tuma bed. It's one of those like... Uh, Googling. Uh, yeah, it's if you imagine like a regular bed frame, but then take out all hardware, like a hundred percent of hardware, it is is gone, and it's just like six pieces of wood built to like fit together in a way that makes a bed frame, uh, where you never have to worry about like screws coming loose. Ooh, you never have to this. worry about yeah. Uh, you know, you imagine like all the struggles of putting together like anything you buy at IKEA. And like you remove it all uh, for something that's like really minimal, uh, minimalistic, uh, really I think elegant in a lot of ways. And I was just like mind blown that like why isn't every bed this way so that you just don't need hardware to to put it together? Because like it's just point, additional points of failure. So that was one that really blew my mind. And the other one has to do with the running. But uh, you know I always run with my phone, but I don't like holding it. And like I didn't like belts or straps. And uh, they. I don't, they probably have had this, but I didn't discover it. I discovered that you can buy uh, like compression shorts that have like a thigh pocket that mm-hmm. like, you know, really strap the phone in there. And uh, that's the place to run with your phone, I've decided. So that's another really low tech product that like, you know, I discovered it and it was just like, wow, well done. Well done. The 15 different short makers that probably discovered it <laughs> simultaneously. <laughs> 
Uh, I, going back to the bed, I'm look. It also looks nice. I'm, I'm on the website now. Yeah. I'm gonna close it so I'm not distracted. But yeah, it's yeah. it's honestly it's also one of the it's one of the like uh, it has like a cult following on Reddit and there's like a whole community <laughs> about it. So like you can go on deep dives, but uh, you know I'll it, go gets, to the, it gets the a two month subreddit. <laughs> yeah, it gets it has one and it's it's got a big time loyal following <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, it well deserved in my opinion. So I just wrote down, I had a real hard time with this one, which maybe says something about me. I need to, dis- need to disconnect at some point, but I just wrote down some board game because I knew that was going to be, there's nothing, there's no physical product I could possibly like more than a board game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got a bunch of it's new Nick's one. last tether to the physical world. <laughs> That's it. In between, in between his tick tick interactions. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a tick tick. Time to play a board game. <laughs> to do, um, yeah. And I got a bunch. I'm going to subject subject you to this weekend when we hang out. But uh, the one I guess I'll pick to pick one. Um, it's called Trick Draw. It's actually the first Kickstarter that I ever backed. I think it's the first. Um, and yeah, it's a, it was a really fun. You, you've actually played it a few times, but it's I really appreciate a game. I don't know if you remember. It's the one where you either put the card face up or face down. First person to 10 face oh, down yeah, cards yeah. wins. Yeah. I really, the thing I appreciate it, it's not my favorite game ever, but the thing I appreciate the most is a game you can explain to someone in like five seconds. It's like, oh, you draw a card and then you either put one face up or face down. So I, I love the art. Thought it was great. Simple games are especially important when you play with Nick because if it takes longer to explain, it's really exponential. Like if it should take five <laughs> minutes to explain, you're sitting with Nick for 25 to half an hour Fred, at the at a minimum. What are you just not so this to talk about the lore of the game? <laughs> <laughs> so this one's excellent because you can sit down, actually get to playing, and and have a blast. I agree. Elegant, simple, elegant board games. Also, I think I, I have a huge appreciation for. Uh, you know, much more so than like the ones that have a million pieces. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's there's something to that. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. So this one can either be personal or professional. Um, but what was the, you know, product enhancement that, uh, you know, you were most excited about the new release this year that, uh, you know, did the most for you? So I actually picked um, a professional one, which is Slack. And their redesign, I have mixed feelings on the redesign still, but by far my favorite thing they did was, and we talked about it in a previous episode, so I won't harp on it, but they, um, the later in activity are now sort of like top level um, features. So alongside like your messages, I use later a ton. I don't mark on red. I use later to things I have to respond to. That's now like, its own top level nav item, I guess you could say. And then activity, which the thing I appreciate most about this is, um, you know, I, it used to not be super effective if you like asked a question and someone gave a thumbs up like on it because you would just miss that. Like you'd never know. That's now a thing you get alerted about so that it makes like interactions even quicker. So you can just drop like an emoji on a message like thumbs up and boom, that's like you know completing the the conversation loop there so i thought those were both really smart um don't love some of the stuff they did around direct messages but uh love both those so emojis are my preferred way to respond to a slack message so i appreciate that it, it keeps people in the loop now yep uh mine is something i also talked about previously on the podcast it's figma's developer mode and i won't get into it other than to say that it finally solved the you know one of the the biggest problems of 
uh, a developer not knowing exactly how much padding is needed, you know, above and below different components and having a developer mode that, you know, you can turn on, shoot a link to that, that defines it and makes it easy to interact with was, uh, you know, chef's kiss really, really nicely done by Figma. Now what's the worst product change you experienced? I got one professional, one personal, I'll rifle off real quick. Professionally, uh, zoom, I swear they put every feature you know the zoom bar is just chaos i need like i just want to share my screen and join a breakout room and leave that's it and somehow there's 20 icons there and (laughs) half the time the ones i want are under the more menu so i get it you got to push your canvases or your whiteboards or whatever you're doing but please put the buttons i need back on the like easily accessible bar that's one gripe uh, That's the- true. That bar has grown, and, <laughs> and it's also hard to find at times. It's like the only that thing disappears more than you know any other product that you're actively using. Like you're actively using it, and it can still find a way to disappear. Yep. Um, and then personally, we talked about this. Reddit did their API changes, which effectively killed third-party apps. I still use Reddit. I dislike the. I liked the third-party app I was using a lot more than the. Um, their app so yeah bummer yeah right, Brandon, what so my, mine is i guess you know maybe a bold claim here but i'm curious if other people feel the same uh i have felt that like google's search results in and maybe this isn't just a past year thing this again might be one of those like slow burns that i like am thinking more and more about lately but have gotten increasingly unhelpful as maybe like the internet has reached a point of like saturation where like everybody just has cracked the SEO algorithm and it's impossible to like wade through. But I have found myself more and more, actually, if I use Google, it's almost always because I'm searching a specific content source that I trust and know won't be oversaturated than I do now to like use it to seek out the best sources Uh, because it's just so overwhelming in terms of like how many sources you can find about like even the most minute and discreet of particular issues that like picking your authors and picking your primary sources that you want to use google's still probably the best search engine of those primary sources like once you do that probably better search engine than like the vast majority of site searches but like it actually finding those primary sources you have to look elsewhere in and offline uh because like it it's just too much, you know. I've I feel like it can't help you anymore there, uh, and maybe it's it's some of the like, uh, you know. I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of like the new AI uh, implementations are going to be more valuable is because, you know, the the results can all look so similar and the same, and it's just hard to hard to make use of. Brendan, in the business, we call that a segue because <laughs> <laughs> our next award is your favorite use of AI this year. Um, so mine is uh, Amazon's AI review summary. I love this. I don't even know if it's accurate, but so I'm. I have a bone to pick with you on this one. But oh, continue. please! Uh, I'm a defender. <laughs> Whatever your stance is, <laughs> um, but I something I do is basically everything I buy on Amazon. I read n number of reviews, and I pretend in my head i've got an accurate opinion of this thing based on the 20 most recent reviews um and 
so what a, uh, Amazon has uh, implemented with AI is that they are essentially taking all those reviews and attempting to summarize them at the top. Uh, so I appreciate that. One thing I will say is that it generally seems overly positive. Uh, I don't know if that's something you're call out, but either way, I love it. Now pick your bone, Brendan. Yeah. So, uh, fantastic that it summarizes the reviews. Uh, but what would be really helpful is if the vast majority of those reviews weren't fake and written <laughs> by, you know, people paid or influenced or, uh, I, I just have such a hard time actually trusting anything that comes out of there. And I actually think it goes back to like, why is, uh, you know, why is, why is Google search no longer helpful? Amazon reviews are, are in the same category. They are like no longer valuable sources of information because I just don't really believe anymore that they're like validated user experiences. Like they, you went through a phase, like they became kind of commercial, right? Like the funniest Amazon reviews became a thing for a while. Um, but you look at stuff now and like, all the top products have several thousand reviews, and I do not believe many of them are real. Uh, and so I have a, I think like that summary, I would, I would just not trust it. See, that's your problem. Uh, you just have to believe. I believe the, <laughs> <laughs> I believe the reviews are accurate, and I, I'm able to believe that the AI could accurately summarize them. It's beautiful. I live in bliss. It's, <laughs> it's really the spirit of Christmas. <laughs> All right, what's your favorite use of AI, Brendan? Uh, so mine's much drier, uh, much less, uh, <laughs> much less spiritual, and also I think uh, uh, probably more valuable. Uh, <laughs> I just like it to write Excel formulas for me. Uh, you know, so much time trying to make like really complex V lookups in like uh, you know Excel or Google Sheets that you know ultimately would work, but you haven't used the formula in fifteen years, so you just can't remember it from back in college. And uh, I find that ChatGPT is excellent. I just tell it what I have in every column and what I'm trying to do. And uh, I would say like 80% of the time, it's spitting out like a really useful Excel formula. Um, yeah, pretty pretty discreet problem solving, but I, I really enjoyed it. I can't, I haven't looked into this at all, but I can't imagine Microsoft has to be pretty quick to reintroduce clippy but he writes excel formulas for you <laughs> this time around <laughs> right i probably I, I agree like something like that's totally necessary because if you look at my like chat gpt log it's just excel formula excel formula excel formula um all right before we get to our 2024 resolutions two more personal questions uh first favorite thing that you put into your eyes this year uh, phrase that way because it could be a TV show, a movie, a book, anything you want. Uh, Brendan, were you confused by the word I wrote down? For it was I had no because <laughs> I saw I, you saw I bleach like, I, as my answer. I <laughs> and did, like, and uh, uh, I'm going to let you explain. Yes. So <laughs> this is if you thought his to-do list and board game answers were lame. Well, just wait, because this is an anime. <laughs> so anyways, I don't think this is going to land with you, Brendan, but there's an anime called Bleach, which I watched over a decade ago, probably at this point. It was discontinued. And then just within the last couple years, it was restarted. Huge animation budget. 
I think it's legitimately good, but I have so much nostalgia. I actually can't tell because I would watch, you know, it was a show I grew up watching. So having it come back is very fun. So I've been, I've been enjoying that. What about you? Yeah, I can't, I have nothing to add to that (laughs) answer. Uh, the, the one book that I think I found really valuable was, uh, it's actually a dog trading book called really reliable recall. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, dog trading is like such an interesting thing, trying to like develop a way of communicating with like an animal that can't speak. Um, and the, uh, the really reliable recall method, um, I found one, it's hugely successful and also just like super simple, but it basically involves like you perform a recall with your dog. Um, but the whole premise of it is then like you make it so that the next 45 seconds are just like the best 45 seconds of your dog's life. Mm. You just give them like the best possible treats and you give it, you know, give them, you know, whatever they find best, right? Like if it's a tug of war game, you play that with them, uh, and you just commit to it and you're, you're going way over the top. It's actually difficult to do because humans aren't built to be that like effusive and like you're not actually that excited, but you just have to be that way. And like dogs can be that excited for 45 seconds. So like they're absolutely loving it. Um, but I thought it was just a, uh, it was simple. It's all built on like positive, uh, training, you know, which is great, right? You're not doing anything to like discipline the dog for not listening. And, uh, it, it works. It's a, a, an excellent, uh, simple, uh, lesson in incentives. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it. And how has Wyatt been liking it? Uh, I have the best 45 seconds of the time, right? Like he loves it. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then the favorite thing you put in your ears. So music, podcasts, audiobooks, whatever. Yeah, this one uh, speaks to the inner skeptic in me. But uh, if I highly recommend the podcast, uh, If Books Could Kill, they basically take uh, books that are, you know, popular uh, they, they talk about them as the books that you'd see so, sold at like a, an airport bookstore or an airport, uh, you know, newsstand type of book, things like uh, Freakonomics and that kind of thing. And then they totally rip them apart. And, you know, from like really bad uh, sourcing that the authors do to oversimplifications uh, and you know, those books do a really good job, I think, of, of selling themselves and being like very... Uh, persuasive in a lot of ways and uh they get they get pretty nicely dismantled by uh, uh michael hobbs and uh, peter who uh who i think they have a few podcasts together but they do they do really excellent work uh and so uh you know i'm i'm uh, ever the skeptic and i appreciate uh their their insight into uh you know some of these popular books is it is it interesting if you don't know the book they're talking about or do you just kind of look up books you're aware of it is because even if uh, it's most interesting if you've read the book sure. with certainty, you know, I think uh, like Freakonomics is one I remember really liking when I was in my early 20s and I had read, uh, but they, they totally ripped that one apart. But even if uh, you haven't read the book, it's often become such a like mainstream phenomena that like a lot of the like essence of a book they're talking about will still be um, – a part of popular culture that um, to have them dive into and like report on is interesting. So like, for example, like you might've heard a lot about the, uh, you know, kind of like the, the 
mass retail theft that like retailers like Target are reporting on and, and saying are is you know a big threat to their business and they dive into like a lot of the numbers behind that that make you question like how big of an issue it really is um, and uh, you know I, I the people that actually do the research and really look into things I think are you know you need as many of them as you can when uh, your alternative is a bunch of fake Amazon reviews so uh, I really appreciate it. I'll wait until there's an AI summary of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. And uh, speaking of books, I actually chose an audiobook. I realize now that all my, my answers have been, I have quite a lot of nerdy answers, but whatever. This one, <laughs> I'm a nerd. Uh, this book, <laughs> there's a series of books called Cradle. It's about 12 fantasy books. They're not particularly long, though. Each one. This one is called Waybound. It is probably it is up there with my favorite series of all time um and i listened to the final book on audio and actually finished it as we were driving into pittsburgh like basically finished it right as i was getting into pittsburgh so it was like kind of like a, a moment there all together like finishing this 12 book series arriving in pittsburgh so it was like a yeah stood out to me for sure um all right let's wrap up here with some resolutions so we're going to do our uh, professional resolution for 2024 our personal resolution for 2024 and then get out of here brendan let's start with your professional resolution for next year yeah professional resolution i think uh is to become more comfortable as a b2c product manager right i talked about uh how we build a lot of products that aren't designed to be monetized, aren't designed to have paying customers, um, but are part of the public benefit mission. And that uh, has an entirely different, uh, is an entirely different, I think, set of customers and, and makes getting feedback so much different than I'm used to in a B2C setting, where oftentimes you have paying customers, right, who have an expectation of value from what they're using. And if they're not getting that, will be extremely loud and, and let you know. Um, or, you know, uh, we'll, we'll sit down with you and, and, you know, do interviews. And in the B2C space, it's just so different, right? You have to, I think, play the numbers a lot more. Um, you often are dealing with like a much larger quantity of customers. And uh, I think finding those customers that are like your model customer is that much harder. Uh, when you know maybe there's more variety or the, the the people you're working with are just that you know that much less engaged with your product because if there's a better alternative you know they're not going to sit there and tell you why or what you should be doing they're just going to going to leave and go use that alternative so uh, I think I have a lot to wrap my head around in terms of uh, how to be the most effective business-to-consumer product manager. Uh, but hopefully next year I'll have a, a lot more to offer in uh, in how to be better there. Uh, I'm going to put in a uh, tick tick to uh, make sure check out our resolutions in our 2024 recap podcast. <laughs> um, all right. So mine is uh, pricing slash monetization. Just in general, um, thinking more about, you know, willing to, willingness to pay, building products with the end price in mind, forecasting, coming up with a pricing structure for a new product it's just really stuff i haven't you know been super involved with before to be honest um you know a, a lot of work like at logic manager for example we had a pricing structure and then we were trying to to you know drive up the metrics that were around that not necessarily like pricing a new thing um so yeah it's just 
something I'm excited to explore uh, and obviously really relevant as I'm working on this new product we're taking to market. <laughs> I love it. All right. All right. Let's wrap up with our 2024 personal resolutions. You go first because I'm still thinking about mine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I think mine is probably one that a lot of people have in, in 2024, uh, but it's to, to continue to kind of disengage from the attention economy is what I'll call it. Um, but, you know, we've mentioned it on the podcast. Um, you know, I, 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 there's a huge market out there for people's eyeballs when it comes to the applications they use and the technology they use and, uh, you know, s- selling your data by having you engage with those ads or, uh, you know, you know, scroll just that little bit farther on whatever app you're using is, uh, is absolutely the goal of so many PMs out there and products out there. Um, but I think there's a lot of evidence and increasingly more and more evidence that it's not the healthiest thing for us as humans. And as, uh, someone who's, who's raising one and soon to be two small humans, uh, <laughs> you know, wanting to make sure I set a good example for how to engage with technology and how to use it. Uh, you know, it is crazy how quickly like an 18 month to two year old can figure out how to like s- swipe through photos on an iPhone. Uh, you know, making sure that I set a good example for appropriate amounts and mechanisms and, and ways of like interacting with technology, I think is super important and uh hope i hope i do a better job of that in 2024 yeah that that's actually i'm 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 gonna get my own but i like that one a lot (laughs) my own resolution uh but i like that one a lot i I have actually noticed that i think to your point having a kid makes you realize it more Uh, my instinct if i have a moment where i'm not being stimulated by something else is to pull my phone out and check everything work email slack personal email i just run a gambit of stuff and like that can't be healthy like the the impulse alone is is concerning to me you know um so yeah and like we all grew up at a time where that wasn't possible but like we're now raising kids who like you know if they fall into that could could go through and never ever be bored and like that seems dangerous so you got to figure out how to make sure they have an opportunity to be bored learn from that deal with boredom you know interact with the real world Stare out, stare out a car window, okay? Just stare out <laughs> <Yeah>. the window. <laughs> um, all right, so I think the one I'm going to go with here is... Um, uh, so I was go- it's not like I want to start going to the gym, it's, you know, but it's uh, making sh- prioritizing like fitness and working out. I, I had like... After Peyton was born, I kind of deprioritized it. I was like, oh, I'll get to it if I can but I'm so busy with work and pay in. you know what I mean? Like it's like an easy thing to deprioritize, but I find I'm so much happier when I do it, when I work out in some capacity. Um, so it's, it's kind of cheating cause it's something I kind of made a pledge when, when we moved as like a, a transition period, but it is something that like, and it's like the first thing to slip, right? Like a kid gets sick or like you get really busy at work, like, you know, but I, actually find like my mental state is so much better even if i can just get like 45 minutes in four days a week or five days you know um so that is like i really want to prioritize and get more on like a a schedule with it because i'm still doing it kind of ad hoc so yeah i love it it's another one of those things that our you know our bodies are built for and and a natural way to use it so uh it's only good for you 
are, are you telling me my body wasn't built to be hunched over in this office chair all day? <laughs> Absolutely. And now, Nick, you can you can log into Strava and take part in the beautiful app that is, you know, check it check it off on your tick tick list when you get it done. <laughs> yeah, I need we a have, recurring we have too. Millions of ways for you to uh, for you to engage. We've just talked about. I love it. I love it. All right, Brendan. Well, it has been a wonderful 2023, another year of the Prod Squad podcast in the books. Will we be back in 2024? We'll have to keep people guessing. Yeah, we have to wait and see. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Until next year, squad out. Take care, all. 